Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 11, The Battle of Medina. I'm Brandon Seal. Colonel Miguel Menchaca salivated at the opportunity that lay before him. Somewhere on the other side of that oak grove across the Medina River was the hated Spanish royalist general Joaquin de Arredondo. Just a few months before, General Arredondo had placed a 1,000 peso bounty on Colonel Menchaca's head, thinking that such a sum would surely turn one of Menchaca's fellow San Antonians against him. But Arredondo hadn't appreciated how deep Menchaca's roots ran in his community. His family wasn't just from San Antonio. San Antonio could be said to owe its existence to his family. Menchaca was a great-great-grandson of José de Urrutia, one of San Antonio's first Presidio commanders, and the Menchaca family had led the Presidio and the militia in defense of the town for almost a century now. Rather than betray him, San Antonians turned out in force to support him, and some eight to 900 mounted vecinos from San Antonio and other Texas settlements stood in formation behind him. And it wasn't just the opportunity to draw down against the royalist governor who had tried to buy his head that so excited Colonel Menchaca. It was a chance to avenge his uncle and so many other San Antonians who had lost their lives at the hand of the Spanish royalist governor. In the tumult of San Antonio's first aborted attempt at revolution two years before, his uncle, José Félix Menchaca, had been swept up in a series of general arrests ordered by royalist governor Salcedo. It was the execution of Menchaca's uncle and Salcedo's other retributions that helped push many San Antonians over to the side of the Republicans. In the previous episode, Menchaca's cousin had led General Bernardo Gutierrez and his Republican Army of the North across the Sabine River and down to San Antonio. San Antonio Republicans, led by Colonel Miguel Menchaca, had flocked to the banner of revolt and soon constituted the majority of General Gutierrez's Republican army, which was all that remained in the north of Mexico to carry on Father Miguel Hidalgo's revolt against Spanish rule. After their victory over the royalist governor and his subsequent execution at the Battle of Rocio Crossing in southeast San Antonio, they declared Texas's independence and established a government in San Antonio, which constituted 80% or more of the population of Texas at the time, and chose General Gutierrez to serve as president. San Antonians knew that it wasn't going to be this easy, however, and that a day of reckoning was coming. The royalist comandante of the internal provinces in charge of Texas, one General Joaquin de Arredondo, was a hard, hard man. Born to a line of Spanish soldiers and administrators that included a governor of Cuba and a viceroy of Buenos Aires, he had played a critical role in suppressing Father Hidalgo's revolt in Mexico. By 1813, he was 43 years old, effectively the super-governor of all the new Spanish northeastern provinces, and at the height of his powers. As news of the success of the Republican Army of the North reached him in Monterey, he began to assemble a punitive force. In the meantime, he looked for a way to pin down the Republican Army and gather intelligence on them. In fact, perhaps a preliminary show of force from a regular Royalist Army might be enough to send home the rabble and save the Royalist General a trip. He landed on Royalist Colonel Ignacio Elizondo, the Republican turncoat from two episodes ago who had released the Royalist Governor Manuel Salcedo in time for him to ambush Father Hidalgo's retreat to San Antonio. Colonel Elizondo still commanded 700 men in the field, many of them the remnants of the Royalist defeat at the Battle of Rocio Creek a few weeks prior, and was anxious to prove his loyalty to the same Spanish crown he had briefly rebelled against the year before. General Arredondo ordered him to cross the Rio Grande and march towards San Antonio, but to wait for Arredondo's force before crossing the Frio River, after which they might bring to bear the full brunt of the crown's vengeance on the Republican army together. Mounted San Antonio scouts followed the Royalist Elizondo's advance up the Camino Real, and quickly determined that it was significantly smaller than their 1,500-man Republican army. For now, anyway. Conscript reinforcements strengthened the Royalists daily, and their six artillery pieces were not to be dismissed. And rumor had begun to reach those scouts of General Arredondo's imminent arrival as well. General, now Texas President Gutierrez, 
had a brief window in which to strike his blow. The enemy had entered his country and divided his forces. President Gutierrez had to find a way to lure the royalist Colonel Elizondo's force north, beyond the assistance of his commanding general Arredondo. And so, President Gutierrez played on Colonel Elizondo's well-known recent history as a flip-flopper. The president made the royalist colonel a generous offer to come over to the Republican side, and he made sure to let everyone in the province know that he had done so. Colonel Elizondo was now in an unenviable situation. His orders had been not to attack, but now, by not attacking, his enemies could make it look as though he was letting President Gutierrez off the hook, as though maybe Gutierrez had flipped him. It worked. Around June 1st, 1813, Colonel Elizondo rashly crossed the Frio River. On June 12, 1813, Elizondo's royalist army arrived to within sight of the communities of San Antonio, setting up camp on the Alasan Creek in the middle of San Antonio's future west side. Colonel Elizondo apparently thought very little of Gutierrez's army, and when he pitched his camp there, he neither posted pickets nor sent out scouts. Early on the morning of June 20, 1813, Gutierrez moved his men into position. His Anglo-American volunteers he positioned on the flanks, while Colonel Miguel Menchaca and his mounted San Antonio vecinos took up the center. Colonel Menchaca had proven to be a critical ally for Gutierrez, not only for his connections in the San Antonio community, but also for his ties to the Apaches. His forefathers had spent a century fighting, trading, and dealing with the Apaches, so that by this time, the name Menchaca had special meaning to the tribesmen, who dealt with him more openly and honestly than with any other white man. In the previous month, he had brought them over to the Republican cause, promising them booty and scalps if they would assist in their struggle against the Spanish royalists. And so, several hundred Apache allies took their position as well that morning, delighted at their charge to cut off any retreat by Colonel Elizondo and his men. The fate of Elizondo and the Royalist Army was sealed before most of them had even woken. Many of them, in fact, woke to the whistle of canister and grape shot fired at close range by Gutierrez's artillery, followed by volleys from the Anglo-American rifles in their flanks, and then a devastating mounted charge led by Gutierrez and Menchaca personally, the solid green banner of the First Republic of Texas flapping in the wind beside them. The Royalist camp was pure confusion. Some units managed to form up their lines and return fire, but successive charges by mounted San Antonio Compañías Volantes repeatedly overran them. After about an hour, Gutierrez's forces had tightened the noose and closed to such short range that Royalists had no option but to flee. When they fled, however, they fled right into the blood-curdling cries of Menchaca's Apache allies. The Spanish army was so badly routed at the Battle of Alasan Creek that it's hard to even find reliable casualty numbers for it. At best, it seems a few hundred Spanish royalists survived, including Colonel Elizondo, who had two horses shot out from under him during his flight. The few that did survive made their way back south to wait for Arredondo. Behind them, however, they left 2,000 horses, 4,000 pounds of flour, 300 muskets, and 5,000 pounds of gunpowder, critical supplies that made the Republican Army of the North stronger than ever. And so, then here's the really weird thing. On August 1st, just 40 days after this resounding victory over royalist forces, President Bernardo Gutierrez of the first independent state of Texas, who over the previous year had raised a binational army, secured foreign support for his cause, published the Declaration of Independence, promulgated a constitution, and defeated two separate Spanish royalist armies in the field, was deposed by the ruling San Antonio Junta. The five Canary Islanders and two Anglo-Americans replaced him with his chief of staff, Cuban revolutionary José Álvarez de Toledo, who had excused himself from duty a few months prior in order to more actively intrigue against his commanding officer in the Louisiana press. He played up the horror of the executions of Governor Salcedo and his officers. He claimed that Gutierrez had no intention of ever paying his soldiers. And he made sure to highlight for U.S. audiences Gutierrez's repeated affirmations of Texas's independence from all foreign powers, Spanish or American. It's hard to really know what happened or how it all went down so quickly. Clearly, Gutierrez had lost some critical support somewhere. Whatever the reason, 
He didn't really fight it. With his own staff and his own revolutionary junta against him, he'd packed up and left, and command passed to General Toledo. The leadership coup in the Republican Army of the North occurred just as General Arredondo's army was crossing the Rio Grande. Arredondo's royalist army approaching San Antonio in August 1813 was probably the largest that had ever set foot on Texas soil. It consisted of 11 artillery pieces, 635 regular infantry, and 1,195 regular cavalry, and included the Zambrano brothers and Angel Navarro, briefly, until he was run out of the army for his brother's involvement on the Republican side. Surely these San Antonians had advised Arredondo on the necessity of a strong mounted force against the accomplished Tejano horsemen that awaited him, and he made sure to bring his best. Regular new Spanish cavalry were renowned the world over, boasting some of the most refined tactics and advanced firearms of the age, and were more than a match for a bunch of glorified cowhands. Despite their unmatched record on the battlefield, the now 1,400-man-strong Republican Army of the North sure didn't look like they were up to fighting a pitched battle with the regular Spanish army. The descriptions provided by contemporaries like José Antonio Navarro of the Republican Army are striking to me because of how similar they sound to later Texian armies and irregular ranger forces. Buckskin attire was widespread, as was elaborate embroidery, short-crowned, wide-brimmed felt cowboy hats, grises sombreros de fieltro de anchas alas y aplastada copa, and high-shanked, well-tooled leather boots. You can almost see the 400 or so remaining Anglo-American volunteers taking note of and admiring the San Antonians' style. They also admired the San Antonians' horsemanship. Our image of Anglo-Americans in Texas is strongly tied to the horse and the mounted cowboy, yet we must remember that at this time, as historian Stephen Harden puts it, Anglo-Americans had not yet learned to, quote, ride like Mexicans, end quote, and it would take several more decades for them to do so. Anglo-Americans at this time were still principally woodsmen and accustomed to doing their fighting on foot. As such, the breakdown of the veteran Republican Army of the North by this point was some three to 400 Anglo-American infantry, about 100 Lipan Apache auxiliaries, and some eight to 900 Tejano, principally San Antonian, cavalry. In early August, word reached now General Toledo in San Antonio that Arredondo's Royalist Army was on the south bank of the Medina River. General Toledo seemed to prefer to wait for Arredondo to come to them, perhaps even to fortify the town and make his stand there. But Colonel Menchaca wasn't going to let Arredondo bring the war to his people in their homes. Plus, the Tejanos had already defeated two Spanish armies in the field by taking the fight to the enemy, not by waiting. In a council of war, Menchaca insisted on riding out with which the leader of the Anglo-American faction agreed. According to Toledo's later writings, he only reluctantly endorsed the plan, though as we'll see, we have fair reason to be skeptical of Toledo's reliability. On August 17, 1813, the Republican Army of the North marched southwest toward a spot somewhere in the area between modern-day Lytle, Somerset, and Von Orme. General Toledo would later claim that his plan was to try and lure Arredondo into an attack. Others claimed that Toledo marched to the Medina River with essentially no plan and hastily ordered the attack as soon as the Royalist Army came into view. Regardless of how it happened or who ordered it, when the armies finally lined up across that sizzling, oak-spotted plain on August 18, 1813, it was the Republican Army of the North who attacked first. As at the Battle of Alasan Creek, the Anglo-American infantry marched up on the flanks and Menchaca's San Antonians formed up in the center. They advanced in relatively good order at first and pulled to within a few hundred yards. Arredondo's royalist forces had formed their line of battle there in front of them, but held their fire. This surely puzzled the Republicans, but the battlefield is a poor place for deep thinking, and they ordered their artillery forward anyway. As they tried to move their artillery into position, however, they discovered their trap. The sandy soil, bogged down by a recent rain, was impossible to maneuver in. As the men started forward again, even their mounts began to sink, and the oak trees in their midst only broke up their battle line even further. As the Republican army stalled, they saw Arredondo thin his lines and move his flanks further out, slowly forming them into the shape of a crescent moon around them. The Republicans lacked the men and the maneuverability to prevent being surrounded, 
And when Arredondo opened with his artillery, in their own set useless and immobilized in the sandy soil, they realized that they had only one chance, to break Arredondo's center. As the mounted Tejanos whipped their horses into a frenzy and charged at the royalist line in their flamboyant attire, no two men dressed alike, no two men even colored alike, General Arredondo realized he had made a mistake and tried to pull his lines back in. The Tejanos crashed into Arredondo's center and, for a moment, broke it. They turned to ride back to their own lines and build speed for a second charge, while Arredondo reformed his center and deployed his reserves. There's a saying in Spanish that El diablo sabe más por viejo que por diablo, that the devil knows more because he's old than because he's the devil. And the devil Arredondo had learned more than a few tricks during a career waging war throughout the hemisphere. First, Arredondo ordered his infantry to hold their fire until the Tejanos were only 40 paces away. As the main Republican force finally drew into range, his men unleashed a wicked volley of musket and artillery fire into the Republican ranks, stopping the advance in its tracks. Then, just as Menchaca's Tejano cavalry galloped into the Royalist line, and despite the obvious peril his army was in, Arredondo ordered his buglers to call out the notes of victory. His soldiers took up the ruse and cried out in unison, Victory is ours! and began to push forward. The ploy inspired the Royalist army and deflated the Republicans. When they heard the notes of victory ring out on Arredondo's bugles, they assumed the battle had turned against them. Never forget that armies are just a bunch of people, most of whom in this case couldn't see more than a few yards in front of them for all the oak trees, bodies, and smoke around them. In that moment, the Republican army wavered, paused, and collapsed. Menchaca and the other officers tried to regroup, but panic had overtaken the lines and shattered the Republican army's resolve. What began as a setback soon turned into full-blown flight. The next three and a half hours witnessed a ruthless massacre. The Republicans would suffer more than a thousand dead, many killed while trying to surrender, compared to only 55 Royalists dead. Among the dead rabble, as Royalist General Arredondo would call them, lay Colonel Miguel Menchaca and the finest of San Antonio's youth. Maybe only a few hundred Republicans escaped the battlefield, though 80 of those were captured soon after and executed. Less than five months after it had been declared, the First Republic of Texas was dead. And in case you were worried about him, don't worry, the commanding general of the former Republican Army of the North, Toledo, would survive. He would return to Spain, where he offered to provide testimony against his old fellow revolutionaries in exchange for personal immunity, which he was granted. He would end his life as a trusted advisor of the Spanish king in a cushy appointment in Switzerland some 40 years later, having left any memory of the little people in his Republican army far behind. Yet General Arredondo wasn't one to forget the past. The next day, he entered San Antonio and declared martial law. Many families, including the Navarros, Veramendis, Ruizes, and Seguins, fled. Some 200 other men from prominent families holed up in San Fernando Cathedral where they claimed sanctuary. Arredondo recognized no such concept for traitors, however, and had them removed from the church and imprisoned in a modest stone house where eight of them would die from suffocation. Arredondo dispatched Colonel Elizondo to East Texas to pursue the fleeing families, intent on exacting revenge upon all who had betrayed the crown. Elizondo would kill at least 70 and capture another 100 on his expedition, before being killed himself by a subordinate. Arredondo was furious, however, that so many had escaped his grasp, and remained certain that others were hidden nearby. He rounded up the wives and children of men he already held in prison, and with this unholy leverage, he pressured them into providing information against their fellow citizens. Yet just as with the bounty that General Arredondo had placed on Colonel Menchaca's head, his latest tactic failed to turn San Antonians against each other. They had endured too much together in their experience on the frontier to betray their fellow vecinos in the name of a king who would just as well threaten them as protect them. Arredondo decided that more severe measures were in order. Starting around the 1st of September, each morning, Arredondo pulled three San Antonio men out of prison, lined them up against a wall, and shot them, placing their heads in iron cages in military plaza for all to see. For nearly three months this went on. 
He executed somewhere between 255 and 327 civilians over the next few months, all the while forcing their wives, daughters, and mothers to make tortillas for the very soldiers who were murdering their men. The Battle of Medina and its aftermath are the bloodiest episode in Texas history, by a tragically large margin. In a province that in 1812 had boasted a male population of less than 2,000 men, some 1,500 had just been killed. Some had been foreigners, to be sure, but the vast majority were Tejanos, and the vast majority of these were San Antonians. The magnitude of this kind of slaughter is unimaginable by the standards of any age. God Almighty, what kind of impression does this leave on a town? What else can we call it except ethnic cleansing, as historian Donald Chipman does, an attempt to eradicate an entire ideology, if not a people? There was a young royalist lieutenant in General Arredondo's army who did not fail to notice the prominent role that San Antonians had played in this little rebellion. General Antonio de Padua Maria Severino López de Santana y Pérez de Lebrón, or Santa Ana, as we'll come to know him, would learn from his experience in the San Antonio campaign to distrust the rebellious and independent citizenry of this town. And he would learn the effectiveness of brutality in, temporarily at least, subduing a population. Compounded by a series of regional droughts and pestilences which began in 1814, the burden of supporting Arredondo's occupying royalist force created severe food shortages in San Antonio over the next few years. And with the Spanish army uninterested in controlling the Plains Indians, and with San Antonio's civilians effectively disarmed, Indian attacks increased. San Antonio would celebrate its 100th anniversary in 1818 in despair, and just to prove that when it rains it pours, on June 5, 1819, San Antonio suffered one of the worst floods in its history, sweeping away 55 dwellings and killing 19 vecinos. The population of Texas fell to its lowest level in half a century, maybe as few as 1,500 people. When the Spanish viceroy ordered Arredondo to reform a government in San Antonio, Arredondo responded matter-of-factly that there were no men left to fill the offices, and the issue wasn't raised again. In the short run, the tragedy in San Antonio, and indeed for most of Mexico, would be left unredeemed. Mexico would win her independence, to be sure, but only when the faction that had opposed independence turned against the liberal anti-royalist regime that took over in Spain in 1820. In a curious historical twist that would foreshadow the decades of instability to follow in Mexico, it was old royalists like General Arredondo and Santa Ana who would lower the Spanish flag and raise the Mexican one in 1821. The old royalists became centralists, supporters of a highly centralized Mexican state along the lines of old Spain and even crowned a short-lived Mexican monarch. The War of Mexican Independence took some 15,000 Mexican lives from a nation of 10 million, and a tenth of those fell in San Antonio, from a population of barely 3,000. There's no other community that I know of that suffered so much for Mexican independence. And so even as independence was finally won, the experience wouldn't be quickly forgotten in San Antonio. At least one-third of the city's men had been killed, their heads rotting in cages in the Plaza de Armas, or their bones bleaching on the battlefield along the Medina River, where their loved ones were forbidden by General Arredondo from even collecting them. Almost to a man, the war had turned San Antonians against the central government, be it Spanish or Mexican, and they adopted a new term to refer to their fellow citizens. Republicanos, Republicans, they began to call each other. A subtle, defiant act of political protest, and a daily reminder of what they had suffered as a community in 1813. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was performed by my lovely wife and in-house editor, Susana. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend, Noel McKay, for letting us use his song, Mi San Antonio, which you can find on iTunes as well. For this episode, my recommendation is to go find the site for the Battle of Medina. And I mean go find it. No one really knows exactly where it was. Several historians have theories, but the exact location of the battle has never been found. 
It's a vital piece of our cultural heritage, and I hope that one day we do find it, if for no other reason, so that we can honor the San Antonians who lost their lives there.